Hello, I'm Terry Schultz and I am channeling Brussels, getting newsmakers, movers and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And my guest this week is former Estonian President Thomas Ilves, who served in that post for a decade from 2006 to 2016. Under his governance, the northernmost Baltic state adapted at warp speed to the Internet, becoming known as Estonia, home to lots of hip startups, the first country to hold national elections with online voting, the first to offer virtual residency to foreigners, attention Brexit refugees. But this week marks another historic first for Estonia. It's been 10 years since what's now considered the first real act of cyber war, often called Web War One. Long story short, a decade ago, the government of Estonia made the long debated move of a Soviet-era statue of a soldier from downtown Tallinn to a cemetery on the outskirts of town. There were riots by ethnic Russians, and on the morning of April 27th, Estonians woke to find the websites of their banks, their government, their newspapers, etc., etc., all shut down, a situation that went on for some three weeks. Estonia blamed Russia, but was not able to pin down the perpetrators. A pro-Kremlin youth group eventually claimed the attacks. In the years that have passed, NATO has slowly realized the power of such weapons. Last year, the alliance formally added cyber as a warfighting domain. The European Union has been much slower to sharpen its blades, as former President Ilves makes quite clear in this week's show. A decade ago, Russia launched against Estonia the first, what is now looking back, the first time ever when uh, cyber attacks were used for political ends. I mean, cyber attacks, digital attacks, of course, had been around for a long, long time, and mainly for spying or for theft, but having it directly as a political act designed to punish a country, uh, that was the first time it happened. So it fits kind of the Clausewitzian definition of continuation of policy by other means. Um, now, when that happened, we were met by incredulity on the part of even NATO, saying, no, no, how do you know? I mean, you know, can we really be sure? And what does it all mean? Um, now, uh, it took a while. And then, well, the first response, and it's kind of the Russia's big own goal, was that they decided, yes, in fact, this is a phenomenon. This is something we have to be worried about. So why don't we set up a country, a center of excellence in the country that seems to know most about it, namely Estonia? So it didn't kind of backfired, I would say, or Europe's own goal. Um, but it takes a while, and uh, at the level of ignorance. Or, or lack of knowledge uh, when it comes to this new digital, brave new world is phenomenal and it will take time for people to figure it out. Well, when, when we saw Russia invade Crimea and, and preceding that was ju this just incredible onslaught of, of disinformation, something that, of course, Estonia had seen for years. I mean, what, what more lessons do they need than that um, a region of a, of a nearby country um, was absolutely taken over with the ground softened by, by these kind of campaigns? My concern is that in the European Union... There's really, uh, well, there's really 
at the level of the union. There's very little uh, effort put into dealing with this issue. Uh, member states are highly concerned, but I um, am kind of perplexed by the, the well, the external affairs people there dealing with issues that, of course, are important, but not of life and death importance to the European Union. Um, and it's very nice to travel around and deal with arcane topics, <clears throat> but we do not see attention paid to the fundamental threats to democracy within the members of the European Union. And I think that the Commission, and in particular the High Representative and the, and the agency that she leads, is being particularly remiss in addressing fundamental threats. So I think people would be shocked to find out that the disinformation effort um, centrally at the European Union level um, has a budget of zero, right? It's the anti-disinformation effort. The anti <laughs> Sorry, the anti-disinformation. You're right, sorry. The, the counter-disinformation office um, ha actually basically is, isn't funded at all. Well, it's, I mean, the, the salaries are paid by the member states that have seconded people to Brussels. So there is no real, I mean, the, the, what is perplexing is no genuine EU effort to deal with a problem that is threatening the fundamental European values of democracy, rule of law, free and fair elections, human rights. We're not paying attention to that. Well, I've, I've put this question many a time to EU leaders, and they say we would need more buy-in from members, member governments, that they don't want the EU to have a bigger role in this fight, and they think they can do it better themselves out of national capitals. I mean, you having been the head of a government in national capitals, do you think that that's possible? Well, one can do that, but one of the strong <clears throat> suits of doing something like that also, um, this is not to say that nation states shouldn't do it, but is the cross-referencing, um, cross-reporting. Uh, it's not that the efforts in each country are de novo and brand new, uh, so that, in fact, uh, it is quite useful to have a, a more broad-based overview of what is happening. So, but do, but wouldn't they have to fund this? Wouldn't they have to give a budget and and give more um, willpower and impetus to to an, an effort in Brussels? And and I'm told that it just isn't there. So, what can the EU do over the heads of of, of uh, national leaders? Well, presumably, there's something known as leadership in the European Commission. You think if they laid it out more clearly? They're certainly, they're certainly willing to impose immigration quotas on <laughs> that's, that's countries. True. You think they need to impose um, Kremlin watch programs on, on individual countries? No, but I just think it's a cop-out. Yeah, but you're, you're, now, you're now working on um, sort of illuminating the, these issues in, in the U.S. Do you see more willingness to deal with it there? I mean, that certainly Washington was caught unawares by this, too. I'm writing about these things as a more, as a broader phenomenon of, uh, of an asymmetrical attack on on liberal democracy. And when I say asymmetrical, I mean that uh, the adversaries of democracy uh, are using methods to do that, to disrupt and to degrade democracy, um, using tools that a liberal democracy 
cannot counter with, uh, nor is it possible to stop it. When I say they can't counter it, is that um, what are you going to do? I mean, you have a completely controlled press in Russia. So what are you going to do? I mean, how are you going to spend this? And, you know, even true information there. Just getting these big demonstrations all over Russia. The Russian media, domestic media, did not carry any news about this. Now it's turned kind of into a scandal and this keeps backfiring. But the point is that they didn't carry any information. So we're not even talking about sending... Uh, sending uh, sort of returning disinformation, which I think would be counterproductive anyway, but rather that uh, I mean, what you can't even send information there. Um, so I mean, not to mention false news, um, hacking into. Uh, I mean, you're not going to disrupt a non-democratic process by hacking into it, right? I mean, you can hack into a, a candidate, you, uh, the servers of a candidate or a party you don't like, and then and dox the information, meaning you publish it. But what good is that going to do in a one-party state? I mean, it's not going to do anything. Uh, so and ultimately, you're not going to affect the election anyway, because if, if the authoritarian regime is counting the votes anyway, then, again, <laughs> uh, what are you going to do? So it is an asymmetric attack, because they can... They can send disinformation, they can hack into you, they can take, steal documents that they've hacked and publish them via WikiLeaks. Um, uh, presumably, they shouldn't be able to uh, manipulate the votes, though in uh, the case of the Netherlands this year, out of fear of manipulation, they went back to using only paper ballots. But do you think when, you, when you've been up on the Hill and, and talking to lawmakers and being questioned by lawmakers, do you get the feeling that they sufficiently grasp the threat here, the threat that Estonia has um, seen manifested, um, you know, so, uh, so, so incredibly in shutting down your banks and shutting, you know, shutting down your government websites? I mean, I, I think even after what happened in the U.S. election, that probably is something that, that um, U.S. U.S. leaders don't really feel could happen there. Well, I don't go there because I want to go there. I go there because they invite me and want to know. So I think that they, uh, I think there's a fairly decent grasp of the, of the range of possibilities in this <clears throat> new digital era. Um, not concerned about people not grasping it. They grasp it, but I think they want to know more about it. And there have been a series of hearings, not only the ones where I've appeared at the center of the house, but other ones, I mean, that I've been at. But there's a continuing process. I got the sense when, I mean, there were, for example, Lindsey Graham in the, in the hearing I watched, I got the feeling that he was really, that, that, that several of them were, were concerned that the administration would not do enough because they kept asking you, if we were to do nothing, what would happen? What would be the implications of the U.S. not taking strong action? And you said in repeatedly different ways, you, you feared that, that Moscow would be emboldened by that. Um, so did, did you get the sense that, that um, at least uh, the Senate and the House are, are, are trying to gear up to, to um, impose some kind of strong measures? I don't know if, if, if they mean punitive measures for what happened in the election or safeguards that it couldn't happen again? Well, I think we're closing in on an issue. I mean, let's recall it's also FBI Director Comey who said they would do it again in 2012, if not in 2018. So I, I think this, you, if you're getting the message from 
you know, from previous victims and you're getting the message from your own intelligence community, uh, eventually I think that um, people will uh, figure, some, figure out what the U.S. response will be. Um, do, do you think that, that NATO has, has gone further than, than the EU in, um, or been more effective than the EU in, in starting to take on the disinformation? They publish, you know, at least fact sheets about, you know, myths about, about NATO as, as purported by, by Russian disinformation. Well, the, I mean, NATO as a, as a primary object of disinformation for its entire history uh, from its conception or inception uh, is, of course, has a much longer track record on this. Um, I mean, NATO does deal with all of the, has been dealing seriously with these kind of disinformation campaigns. They even have set up in uh, Riga, Latvia, a center of excellence to deal with strategic communication, which is, uh, I think, a big step forward as well. True. Tell me about the Talon Manual, because that's something that um, they certainly talk about at NATO more than they do at the, at the EU. Well, it's talked about, I guess, primarily because <laughs> it was produced by the NATO Center of Excellence in, uh, in Tallinn. Uh, but it is actually, uh, it's the first volume which came out several years ago is a, an overview of how already existing international law, um, basically conflict law, applies to the cyber domain. And then the new manual is on how on international law applicable to cyber operations basically in peacetime. Uh, it's a very big fat book uh, and it's produced not by NATO militarists, it's produced by uh, a, a, one of the most distinguished possible groups of experts on international law uh, dealing with conflict. Uh, so, I mean, this is, it's a welcome and much needed addition to to the literature and is uh, heavily used, I know, by a number of people who are trying to figure out how to proceed with regulation or setting norms in uh, in cyberspace, even though I hate that word. Uh, but in any case... What word do you like us to use? Uh, no, I'm, we need something, something, we need several new terms. It's just uh, the word cyber, I think, is... If you deal with it all the time, you begin to gag because it's applied to everything. It's true. It's true. I never know whether to hyphenate it or not. Don't you have the same problem? Well, I try to avoid <laughs> using it, but it always creeps into discussions. For for lack of a better term, we're calling it cyber yeah. operations. And this, of course, is particularly um, particularly pertinent to NATO now because it is now one of the four domains um, where war, where it's it's considered a defensible um, a defense an attack w could could possibly trigger Article Five or at least uh, some kind of um, collective mm -hmm. defense. Uh, it, it, but isn't the, isn't the the problem with a book like this that uh, you can write it and by the time you get it in print, the you know activities have already gone leaps and bounds well, beyond um, beyond what was I what mean, was written. Uh, the, uh, yeah. Okay. The uh, the actual kinds of attacks uh, will progress, but I mean, international law was talking about aggression and attacks, and so 
ultimately the same law if someone shoots a missile at your <clears throat> at your electrical power plant it has uh, and it destroys it uh, and but if someone <clears throat> directs malware there and destroys it i mean the effect in the context of international law is the same an aggressor has destroyed something on your territory that is of of vital importance to the civilian population. Well, given that we know, um, at least in many of these attacks, that they are emanating from Moscow, even though um, oftentimes you can't get EU leaders or even NATO leaders to, to name the aggressor, they have been identified by many outside experts um, as, as coming from Russia, especially in the latest and, and most egregious attacks. Um, do you feel that, that the Kremlin is getting off, well, is the getting US, off easily? Well, President Obama did impose uh, sanctions on, uh, on Russia. Uh, I mean, I think one of the problems is um, that many political leaders don't really quite get it. Uh, they don't understand the technology. And then they will repeat things that they've heard, such as, oh, well, we never really know who actually did it. Well, in fact, that's not true. In fact, uh, we've gotten to the point where, though it may take a little bit of time, uh, you can have a very high level of, of um, confidence in, the, in uh, ascribing the source of an attack. Uh, and it's not simply looking at the code that's used, though even that is, provides you a lot of information, but other sources as well, including human intelligence. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, the two sort of main uh, attackers from Russia have been, are basically called APT-28 and APT-29. APT stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. It originally was... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Uh, the term APT was developed in response to Chinese hackers, but we're talking about two specific, with very concrete profile groups that have hacked into Germany's Bundestag, they've hacked into Estonia, they've hacked into the United States. I mean, it's been it's been all over. Uh, and their profiles are fairly uh, recognizable. So... Why can't we do anything? So why can't we both punish those who who fund this, um, uh, who, who support it in in whatever ways um, are necessary? Uh, because I think I think we're only coming to grips with the nature of the phenomenon, and it takes a while. If people had paid more attention to what happened to Estonia, could they have um, maybe stopped the annexation of Crimea? Is that too big a stretch? No, I I don't. That's too much, because, I mean, there were, I mean, clearly there were all kinds of digital efforts in place and disinformation, but I think the world, well, I, I would say, I, my argument is that the Western liberal democratic world uh, could not believe that a country in the 21st century would annex anyone's territory through the, using the means they did. So even if they had paid attention to the disinformation to the to the, to the sort of softening of the ground, they still wouldn't have wouldn't have expected that last step. And they would not have. No, I mean I think everyone was shocked, and in fact the kind of confusion that went around that whole incident where people talk about little green men. Um, um, That's right. Which you know thereafter, Putin himself said, "Well, they were actually our guys, but they were insignialists, you know, and basically." Uh, 
um, spe special operations forces. Um, and then, of course, some of this mythology persists in that uh, people say, oh, what happens if little green men show up in Latvia? Well, little green men can't show up again because that's something that caught the West off guard, whereas now the problem is the opposite. We're so hypersensitized to insignialist special operations forces that if you look a little suspicious, like if you're a hunter, I would get nervous about going hunting, you know, because <laughs> you're not wearing insignia and you're carrying a gun and someone instead might say, uh-oh, little green man, let's be better shoot him. When actually the real dangerous guys are just sitting in an apartment somewhere um, or in a government office somewhere and um, launching really lethal attacks on, on um, electronic systems. Well, we haven't seen anything disastrous yet. Um, we have seen uh, what is quite, uh, which is evidently a um, an attack on the electric on an electrical power plant in Ukraine. We've seen a lot of probing all over the world of uh, uh, power systems, financial systems. Nothing has been acted upon yet. But would you say it's just a matter of a very short amount of time before? Um, if there's not there's not enough pushback, there's not enough uh, technical um, technical guards put up that we're going to see something disastrous, something magnified uh, from the extent that that Estonia saw it ten years ago. I think I mean this is purely my sort of gut feeling is that they have been so overwhelmingly successful in manipulating democratic elections. Uh, why bother getting destructive, physically destructive? I mean, if you can put in place governments that are favorable to you, I mean, why get into the really nasty stuff? And ending up with that depressing prediction is former Estonian President Thomas Ilves discussing the state of NATO and EU cyber defense a decade after his country was the site of Web War One. Thanks to the Atlantic Council, as always, for sponsoring Channeling Brussels. Thanks to you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.